The views and opinions that are expressed in this and future podcasts are not the views coming out of the State Office of African American Affairs and are not the views coming out of any other state agency, including the governor's office. I'm Danny Golden. And I'm Devin Williams. And this is Re-Educated, a podcast brought to you by the New Mexico State Office of African American Affairs. Welcome, everybody, to Re-Educated, a podcast where we're going to rethink, relearn, and get re-educated on many topics concerning the Black community here in the state of New Mexico. The purpose of the podcast is to educate the community on environmental, social, and physical inequities and challenges that Black communities must deal with and what can be done to empower the Black community to help them navigate through the understanding of legislation and policy on a micro and macro level. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to our fourth episode of Reeducated a podcast where we're going to rethink, relearn, and get re-educated on all the things related to the Black community and the struggles we face. We've been covering many topics, and we're so glad that you all have received it, both skin folk and allies alike. (laughs) (laughs) Can I say that on here? Yeah. We skin folk, right? Yeah. (laughs) Today is going to be another one of those episodes where we encourage you to take care of yourself. Step away if you need to. Take a breather. You don't have to listen all at once. Some of these topics can be a little bit difficult. Mm -hmm. As Black people, I think we find ourselves very often pushing through things that are uncomfortable because we know that they're important. And that's something I think that we have in common at this present moment. But We can't forget to go back, like I said, and take care of ourselves, breathe, hydrate, Mm -hmm. that we hope you end up rejoining us. So this episode is going to be about the disparities in healthcare for Black women. And it's a topic that obviously is near and dear to me being a Black woman, but I think that we don't talk about it enough. We don't hear about it enough for sure. So here we are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is definitely a heavy topic for me as well, just because I grew up around black women. Um, My uh, wife is black and I just have, you know, being a black man, I just have a connection to black women. And so not necessarily experiencing the exact same things that these women are experiencing, but I can resonate with some of the things that they're going through. Definitely. I like that term that you use, resonate, because Mm -hmm. I think at the heart of a lot of these issues is people not being able to relate Mm -hmm. and thereby remaining ignorant about certain things. Because even if something is not your plight or not your experience, that doesn't mean that you have to turn a blind eye to it, right? I think that it's important for people who are not Black women, all kinds of human beings, Mm -hmm. to educate yourself, make yourself aware of the things that impact Black women specifically, because if it's a problem for us, it's a problem for all. Because everybody knows that (laughs) the whole entire world came from the Black woman. Right. Mm -hmm. So we got to talk about this. 
Let's dive into some things, though, because we have to look at what the data shows. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, you know, you can't really get the full picture unless you have measurements and data behind Mm -hmm. what it is that you're researching, talking about, etc. And so I was able to actually find a really good article from the endometriosis foundation and their website is endofound.org so you can find this article about the disparities in healthcare for black women i'll be referring to it pretty often because they just did such an amazing job of collecting a lot of data and information all in one place everything's hyperlinked so you can go and look at the research for yourself So I think a good place to start is something that people are very familiar with. I think that one of the Mm -hmm. reasons why we're even having this conversation is because women give birth, (laughs) right? And men don't. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to simplify it down to that, but that obviously opens up a a realm of medical issues Mm -hmm. that can be experienced by a person when they're a woman. And then we're taking it from the perspective of the black woman. So maternal mortality and injury rates are actually higher for black females, irrespective of income or education level. So basically, no matter what your education is, no matter where you are, you're inherently as a black woman going to endure more hardships with pregnancy than any other ethnic group, regardless of status. Yeah. And I think that's pretty wild, right? Because typically those types of factors, economic factors, educational factors determine or are related to the outcomes of Mm -hmm. a group of people being studied. So if you look at white women, I'm sure that the data sets show that those factors have an impact on what the outcome is going to be for those women. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women. And this part, right? Black women are also three to four times more likely to suffer from a severe disability resulting from childbirth than white women. So basically, no matter what, you could have a black woman who has all of her education, lives in a very wealthy neighborhood. And regardless of that, she's very susceptible to enduring hardships and uh, injury or dying from childbirth, which we have to protect our black queens. And I know I'm going to probably say that a lot during this episode because it holds true. Our black women, our black queens are suffering. They're not provided equal. And again, the word of the podcast series, equitable opportunities that need to be provided for them. And so we definitely have to address this and we're going to get more into ways to address it. But Mm -hmm. I just had to say my piece about that. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up the word um, equitable Mm -hmm. because that's just what we were referring to, right? We were talking about how The money doesn't impact what kind of care you get, you know, and you would think that when you close that disparity in in wealth, in education, that now you have better access to better resources. Mm -hmm. 
So you would think that goes away, but how can that go away when it's really a systemic problem as it is in so many of the other realms that we've discussed previously, right? Yeah. We've discussed policing Mm -hmm. and how race comes into play there. We've discussed education, higher education. We've discussed all kinds of establishments that because the the toxicity Uh of white supremacy exists in those areas, it just bleeds out into to us. We feel it, you know, we get the negative effects of that. So I just thought that was really crazy because I knew that the mortality rate of black mothers was going up. And I knew that we are far more likely to experience harm Mm -hmm. in hospitals and in, at the hands of medical professionals, but I had no idea that it was just like blanket everybody. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so that's crazy. And that's unacceptable. Like you were saying, speaking of the economic side of it, Mm -hmm. there exists women who struggle with infertility Mm -hmm. period across the country, across the world. But black women are actually impacted at a higher rate. So infertility affects at least 12% of women of childbearing age, but studies suggest this number doubles for black women in the U S however, while more than 20% of black women may experience infertility, only 8% of them seek medical help to get pregnant compared to 15% of white women. That's a crazy number. Just in itself, uh, the percentage of black women who are experiencing infertility. Mm -hmm. And that, in large part, the 8% that actually seek it Mm -hmm. is because of the lack of resources Mm -hmm. to be able to get that infertility um, help, you know, that assistance. And it's a lot due to um, lack of opportunities with employment, you know, not having the exact same insurance as, Mm -hmm. you know, their white counterparts. There's so many different aspects as well as not trusting the system Mm. because it's not built for black bodies. It's not built for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just the surface level of not having access to the resources because we know that exists. We don't have access to it. But what's shocking is even when they do, there's that stigmatization there, right? Mm -hmm. They don't feel comfortable even seeking help, Mm -hmm. you know, even if they can, they don't feel comfortable, like you said, because we know we've experienced being in a doctor's office and not just not being treated the same, Yeah, not having that bedside manner Mm -hmm. that they're taught, you know, when they're going through their medical training and yeah, it's, they're not being, we're, we're not getting the bedside manner but they are being taught other things that are really harmful to to us. You mm-hmm. know, they're being taught things that are inaccurate. Yeah. And we kind of touched on some of those things like the misinformation about how much pain a black person, specifically a black woman in this instance, can endure, tolerate how much pain they feel even. Yeah. And there have been for so for so long there's been that misinformation in medical literature today. You'll you'll see 
things as it relates. I saw something from 2018, medical literature talking about the high pain tolerance of African-American people. And with this misinformation and misconception, that brings Mm -hmm. us to our next point where Black women are underrepresented in clinical trials that require consent Mm -hmm. and are overrepresented in studies that do not. So essentially, when you're looking at Black women, they because there is this misinformation of them having a higher pain tolerance and mm. having thicker skin. They, like li- literally, yeah, like physically, li- <laughs> biologically, thicker skin. Yeah, this is like, <laughs> yeah. like who, who says that? Who said that? Who, you think about some of these things and we giggle about it because it's like so stupid. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's like, <laughs> but it, it actually happens and actually people happens. actually think that black people, but black women in particular, don't feel pain the same way as everybody else or has literally thicker skin. And it even goes back to the slave days where these uh, medical professionals would experiment and do different trials on black people and black women just to see how they react. And they figure, oh, because they're naturally stronger, which is something that we touched on before, but this is okay to do because Mm -hmm. they don't feel the same pain as a white person or Mm -hmm. a person that isn't black. Right. That dehumanization Mm -hmm. of the black body to where it's almost we're beastly or animalistic in some way. And not as human as white people. That's why we're so strong and we're so athletic and we can endure so much, which we have a strong spirit. (laughs) You know, the spirit of black, we are, we are resilient people. We are strong people. But I think where the rhetoric becomes damaging and problematic is when we start that whole talk about strong black women, Mm -hmm. like we always have to be so strong. That's always what society likes to pluck out and put on display, like how strong we are, while on the other end, they're abusing that. Mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. They're abusing it when we're at our most vulnerable, which is when we're seeking medical attention. Yeah, It's just beyond messed up. And it's detrimental to black women because you're taught this at a very young age. Mm, You're taught, Mm -hmm. yeah, you have to be strong. You can't show your emotions. You can't uh, be expressive. If you're expressive, you're angry. Right. And you can't be passionate. It's all these different things that go into essentially uh, oppressing black women and black girls. And when you oppress black girls, black children, and you see or you have other boys and girls of color and white mm-hmm. boys and girls, then you have this uh, misconception of the way black women should be. And instead of them being human, instead of them being kids, they have to grow up quicker than they're supposed to. Right. Many would hear this conversation, like I was saying before, and say, that's so isolated. It's only affecting them. Leave it there. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case because it it's so closely related to the experiences that we're having just out in the world. People of color in general, but specifically Black men and even more specifically Black women. Those Mm -hmm. two things correlate. Yeah. Because as you just described, it just has this trickle-down effect, this impact on people who are children. You know, it, it impacts the next generation. So... 
And even um, when you're looking at the these adults and individuals who are treated in healthcare systems, it's crazy that there's not this basis of ethics there and this basis of uh, consent culture when you're looking at Black people. I remember it was times that I would be in the hospital or in the emergency room and instead of them telling me what they're doing to me or what medicine they're giving me and what it does, they would just put it in or do whatever. And I'd have to actively always ask, hey, what are you doing? What does this do? What does that do? Why are you giving me this? Why are you giving me this amount? Why aren't you giving me this amount? And I had to inquire, which, you know, I feel like that should be a base practice that every person in the medical field should be doing is informing their patients on what's going on and what's going in their bodies. But that brings me to the point you just made me think of something Mm -hmm. right then when you were talking about how that interaction is supposed to go between that medical professional and the patient. If in society, because when doctors leave, right, they're at some point, they're not a doctor, they're a doctor, but they're Mm -hmm. not always in the hospital. They don't always have that hat on. Yeah. So they're susceptible to the same programming that's pushed out to the masses Mm -hmm. about how black people are, our, our level of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you change the setting and you put it in a doctor's office. Do we think that those things don't impact those interactions when they're seeing us criminalized in the news? They're seeing, they're just seeing us made a mockery of, they're Mm -hmm. seeing us be abused and that's being normalized. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you put that whole recipe in a separate setting. It's, you're still going to have the same result. You're going to have the experience that you described where they're not explaining, they're not connecting, they're not bringing their full bedside manner Mm -hmm. into that patient room. And they're not only missing cultural capital capital and cultural competency when they're dealing with uh, minorities and black women in particular, but they're being miseducated because they see all this propaganda in the media saying black people are demonized. uh, That's dehumanizing black Mm. people that are making black people have these animalistic instincts and culture, which obviously that's not the case. Just because the media is portraying us in a certain way doesn't mean that it is. Mm-hmm. You know, Black people, we're just trying to be heard. We just want to have a voice. We're just wanting to have a platform. We just want to live. Yeah. And we get interrogated. We get ostracized. We get pigeonholed for just trying to be here and have a normal life and live a normal life. And these medical practitioners, these uh, healthcare professionals that aren't black see all this stuff that's going on in the media. And again, there goes that miseducation where now they have a certain misconception of how black women and black people are. Yeah. They're not immune. And the only way to combat what we're describing is education, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I shouldn't say the only way to combat it yeah. because I think I truly, I heard myself say that out loud and I'm like, is that the only way to combat it? Mm. Or does it to some level not only require education, but the willingness to have a change of heart mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and the awareness of 
one's own privilege in these situations you know as a as a medical professional you have to flip that personal switch Mm -hmm. you feel me to where it's like okay i'm and i'm not a doctor so don't quote me on any of this these are just my observations opinions etc but you have to flip that personal switch and say look I'm a doctor. (laughs) Just like that. You're going to say it just like that. Look, I'm a doctor. I'm going to be dealing with patients that come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of economic backgrounds, all kinds of educational backgrounds that are all different. And I really need to every single day that I step into that clinic, that hospital, that ambulance, wherever it may be that I'm performing my medical duties, Mm -hmm. I need to step into that space every day and check myself, check myself on my implicit biases, you know, check myself on what I'm learning, what I'm teaching myself, what I'm consuming. It just seems to me like a really, really important job That's not that doesn't just take the education that you receive at the university in your four years of medical school Mm -hmm. and your residency and all of these type things. I feel like that's one of those jobs where you have to, like, be a good human being. Yeah. You feel me? (laughs) Like you can't just like go off of the education like the in in the medical literature, like educate yourself to be a better person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? A better citizen, a better community member. Yeah, a better human. And not only with all those things, but also having proper representation of the individuals that you're working with or you're possibly operating Mm -hmm. on or, you know, you're helping to get better in terms of health. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when you look at the healthcare field, there's a lack of representation, especially in New Mexico, there's a lack of representation of black doctors and nurses that are in these and not only that minorities Mm -hmm. from my understanding you know it's very uh saturated and having a lot of uh white people and white men in particular especially in those higher up positions absolutely as like the actual doctors the Mm -hmm. actual surgeons all those different things and i want to touch on that really quick because Mm -hmm. i know you said you know yes i think majorly a lot of the times in most places we're looking at white males in, Mm. you know, in these positions as these medical professionals. But a lot of times we're also looking at immigrants, Mm -hmm. people from other countries that have not really been exposed to firsthand. And a lot of times have not been schooled on this thing that exists here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This very complicated beast that we wrestle with in every facet of American life. Yeah. While they may be people of color from India and other places, and they kind of kind of identify with us on an, a melanated level, mm-hmm. they don't realize the the black experience here. They're not familiar with that here. Mm-hmm. They're not familiar sometimes. I think that they're complicit in a system that is so oppressive and harmful to a whole population of people. Yeah. And to that point, 
if you really need to or you really want to understand the black experience, it's hard to do that coming in initially. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some conversations and just submerging yourself in the shoes of the black person and in black communities. And until you've properly submerged yourself into the black experience, it's going to be very difficult to understand the hardships and, you know, the fears that black people have. Because again, all these systems, especially in the U.S. are not built to protect and to help mobilize Black people, Black women, and Black women's bodies. Absolutely. I know you touched on some of your experience, um, but when I had my daughter nine years ago, I had her in Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and I was basically told when I went in, so my water broke, mm-hmm. right? My water broke around 3 p.m. on August 26th, which was a Friday in 2011. Yes, I remember all the details. Mm-hmm. How could I not? And so I knew my water had broken. It wasn't like the big thing that you see in movies where it's just like this big event and everything. But my water broke and I knew it, Right. I was about to give birth. And so I wasn't in pain. I wasn't having super bad contractions yet, just some small ones. But I was advised and it's known that once your water breaks, you need to go to the hospital. So I get my hospital bag and everything. And I have my uh, father-in-law at the time drive me to the hospital. And I show up and let them know what's going on. Let them know my water broke. And for probably about five, six hours, maybe seven, I was subjected to questioning about why I thought my water had broken, telling me that I had no idea what I was talking about. My water hadn't broken. They literally would not believe me. I'm 10 months pregnant. Like the 27th was 40 weeks on the dot. Mm -hmm. And I'm being told that I have no idea what I'm talking about, that I'm crazy. Like they're about to send me home and I'm, I'm at the beginning stages of labor. Mm -hmm. And I really, I guess until we did this episode, I haven't really like said all of this out loud, but I really, I think about that and I hear myself saying it and it really disturbs me. Mm -hmm especially when it comes to mothers and women that are pregnant, I'm a strong believer. And I know that we know that emotional trauma can be passed down from generation to generation. And we've talked about that. Even when it comes to, if you listen to episode two, we talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. How these experiences get passed down to generations. And so it disturbs me that I had to have that experience before my child was even born. And to think that that may have some impact on my daughter just really kind of makes me upset and angry and hurt and sad because I know so many other women are having that experience and worse, you know? So I get, they check me in, they put me in this little room. It's cold. It's uncomfortable. They're not communicating with me except for to tell me, Hey, we're going to do a test to, 
we're going to do a test on you because we don't think that you're lying, but you're pressing us so much. So come in here. We'll stick you in this room. We'll run a test on you to see if your water really did break. And they run the test. Hours later, they come in and they, and a nurse comes in, white lady. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the test came back. Your water broke. So we're going to move you to labor and delivery. Like, uh, I'm sorry that I'm annoying you with my baby that I'm about to give birth to, (laughs) (laughs) but that you, you see what I'm saying? Like that experience is so disgusting. Like I'm about to bring a human being through the portal of life Mm -hmm. and I can't even get a, Hey, how you doing? An explanation. Not only that, did I not get them being nice, but they were actively victimizing me. Yeah. I don't know how else to to put it. And I think that that's just the sad truth that especially in those situations you have all of these other poisons that have infected these people's brains. Mm-hmm. Then they put on their scrubs and then they go to work at a hospital or in an ambulance. You know, and that's the really unfortunate part about it. So that's my story. And like the one that sticks out to me the most, as Mm -hmm. far as being in one of those situations where I was just really like mistreated. I, the whole rest of my labor was not that great up until I literally gave birth. But that whole night, cause I was in labor for like 21 hours, Mm -hmm. that whole night, it was lack of communication that whole night. I got a nurse where I, I needed to go to the bathroom and, and I, I couldn't have to go to the bathroom, attached to cords and things yeah. like that. Cause they just wouldn't check on me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so what, what can be done about this? Because this is a, obviously we've talked about the data. There's research that supports it. We know that these disparities in healthcare exist for black women. That's a fact. It's undisputable. It's undeniable. But we're going to go to break and then we'll come back and talk about what we can do. We're going to hear from some of our sponsors. So stick with us. Since 1912, Loveless Health System has been committed to meeting the growing healthcare needs of the Albuquerque community. They're invested in bringing people, providers, and technology together to ensure patients receive the best care possible. The vision of African American Student Services, AFRO, is to cultivate Black excellence on the university campus through educational discourse, leadership development, holistic health, wellness practice, and community engagement. The African American Student Services program at UNM provides culturally relevant programs designed to assist primarily African-American Black students in making a confident transition and successful adjustment to the University of New Mexico. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Reeducated. Thanks for listening to some information from our wonderful sponsors. We are so glad that we have the support of our community and so many wonderful organizations. Later on in this episode, we'll hear some more from our sponsors and also about some great individuals and businesses that are doing great things in our community on the glow. We'll talk about that. You guys can hear that a little bit later in the episode, but for right now, we want to get back into it and we have a special guest on with us. 
Hello, so we now have Alicia Pagis, a former nursing student at the University of New Mexico here to just give a little bit more insight on the experiences of a healthcare professional, what it means to be on the front lines, and also providing more experience on being a Black woman in New Mexico. So uh, how are you doing, Alicia? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Very good. Yeah, thank you for coming on with us. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We felt it was necessary to just kind of expand the perspectives in this conversation, because while many Black women, we experience a common, we have a common experience when it comes to the healthcare system, we all have our different stories and how that system has impacted us in different ways. So you want to get into it? <laughs> you know, a lot of um, our experiences come from a lack of advocation, whether that's on behalf of the, the greater healthcare system or even on behalf of our immediate healthcare team. You know, you were, you were mentioning um, some of your experiences that you had, and I, I have seen those, not necessarily in practice, because I'm not yet licensed. <laughs> right. But... Um, yeah, I've definitely experienced that within a clinical setting. There definitely is still a great misunderstanding around healthcare and how to adequately address um, yeah. social injustice mm -hmm. that African American people face in healthcare um, while still providing adequate healthcare. Does that make sense? Definitely. Yeah we we were talking about earlier how the people that are medical professionals experience life and experience the inundation of all of these messages about black people and black bodies. And they take their own personal experiences and biases into their profession. And they have replaced their lack of knowledge about us with a lot of misinformation. We were talking about some of the things that are taught about Black people and how they experience pain, how much pain they can take, the even down to the the physical, you know, aspect of our bodies, like the thickness Definitely. of our skin. <laughs> Definitely, so. and that's a, a deep that's deeply rooted in the history of medical experimentation on Black bodies mm. within this country, for mm. sure. Um, that is a a horrible preconceived notion that Black people do not experience the same pain or that we don't have even the same general anatomy as, uh, as other individuals. Mm. Um, and that's deeply rooted in, in slavery. You know, uh, one book that I want to mention to you guys was uh, Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. Because yes. that's where um, I've gotten a lot of insight and understanding in terms of medical experimentation of, of Black individuals. And one thing that, you know, was very apparent is that there was an economic interest in keeping black people sick or keeping black people disenfranchised. And as, you know, healthcare has progressed in this country, mm -hmm. you know, obviously it's become more politicized and racial inequality is highly politicized as well. So I, I agree with you, Danny, that a lot of the, the preconceived notions that people carry with them about black individuals and about people of many different cultures can definitely follow them into the healthcare field. And that's unfortunate because, you know, as, healthcare professionals and as future healthcare professionals, we have an obligation to not have any of that mm. uh, when dealing with any patient at all. But yeah. Yeah. I wanted to touch on something that you said because 
I want to draw the comparison between the prison industrial complex specifically and the healthcare system. While many people think that these things are so separate, there just exist so many similarities. So in the same way that we're overcriminalized so that they can fill the prisons so that certain people can profit off of that. You mentioned it's it's the same thing in healthcare a lot of times. There is a profit to be made off of keeping us sick, running us through, you know, these hospitals, keeping us down and vulnerable in that sense. And it's super unfortunate that we're even talking about those two establishments, those two systems in the same conversation. Your experience in with the justice system or the injustice system that we're seeing today shouldn't be the same experience that you have when you're going to see your OBGYN. Right. Absolutely. You know, and over the summer, as we were all, I think as as a nation, everybody was really um, coming forward and speaking outwardly about the injustices that Black people face. One thing that I I saw repeatedly was that, you know, Black men often are victims of police brutality, but Black women are victims of the healthcare system. Wow. Um, So, yes, I I definitely see where those similarities come in between healthcare and the prison industrial um, complex. And I think it has a lot to do with the, the type of healthcare that we push in this country. So we have levels of prevention um, that we talk about, especially in population health, where you know some countries or some states even might push for primary prevention, which is making sure that people have adequate housing, um, making sure that people have access to healthy foods, you know, those sorts of things. Versus like secondary prevention where we talk about screening and giving immunizations and and all of those things. But unfortunately, um, the majority of this country functions off of tertiary care, which greatly burdens the black community because oftentimes um, people find themselves uninsured and having to seek tertiary services like an emergency room and not necessarily getting the resources that they need in order to sustain health. So healthcare is is never really so black and white. It's it's a very complex system with so many different moving parts. Um, and that's I, very similar to racial injustice, which is that black people face inequality, um, not just in terms of uh, policing, not just in terms of healthcare, but in access, in housing, in education. So there are so many systems at play that harm black bodies. Um, and healthcare is really one that is sort of coming to the forefront, especially now that we're in the middle of a, oh my gosh, an unprecedented pandemic where we see a lot of black, brown, um, native populations falling to this disease at such an incredible rate and seeing the economic toll um, that it takes. It really shows how the healthcare systems that we've been pushing in this country are inadequate um, and they don't do enough and that they they fail us in in many different ways. Right. These systems that are meant to help us when we're at our most vulnerable, right? If we're, if we're talking about, you know, drawing the comparisons and also just talking about this subject from every aspect of society and how it's coming at us, these are the systems that are supposed to help us when we're at our most vulnerable. We are talking about when you're experiencing domestic violence and you want to call somebody to help you with that situation and protect you and take you out of that situation, you fear for your life. 
if that police officer right. comes into the situation and takes your life or, you know, even the person who's committing the crime, they're supposed to go to a trial and they never make it. You know, when you are experiencing medical vulnerabilities and you're, you're expecting to be taken care of, you're expecting to be able to go in and have someone tell you and give you peace of mind and give you care and treatment. Sometimes people don't even seek that care. You know, that's what we were talking about because they just don't feel comfortable because like you were saying, Lisi, so many systems in this country, including healthcare, fail us on the regular. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And we definitely see that a lot in clinical practice. One example that really stood out to me when you were saying that was the uh, Black trans community, Mm -hmm. Um, not just in our state, but in in a lot of different communities and states where it is difficult to seek healthcare because it, you you never want to be put in a position where you feel like your life is not valued, especially at a time where you need help. Yes. Um, and it's unfortunate that healthcare systems, you know, can make individuals feel that way or can make anybody feel dehumanized or uncomfortable. But it's it is a, a very real reality that we have in healthcare. And it's definitely the responsibility of healthcare professionals and future healthcare professionals to really be on the forefront of that and to really speak out openly about that. You know, uh, one thing that you always hear, like, you know, in any emergency room is that when you work, when you're with a patient, it's their worst day of their lives. They don't want to see you, you know, wow. just yeah. in general, it's, um, it's already a frustrating and, and scary time for anybody who has to seek some type of, of medical care. So the fact that you would make that resource more inaccessible through discrimination or through just blatant miseducation is, I mean, alarming in more ways than one. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think before we went to break, we were going to talk about some ways to to combat this and to reform this and to, to change this problem that's affecting our Black women in this country do you think that education is that thing? Is Absolutely. That's the solution? Um, and I don't think that that education is limited to people who are invested in healthcare, who are working in healthcare. I think that that is education for everybody. There tends to be like this elitist mindset when it comes to healthcare or any type of health science education, that it takes a degree or that it takes, you know, that type of discipline to really understand it and to really embrace yourself in it. But um, it needs to be a bigger conversation than it currently is, even aside from the uh, the politics of it as well. And yeah, education is a really big part of that. You know, in terms of future healthcare professionals, one thing I wanted to mention to you guys was, you know, the nursing code of ethics, you know, and we all had to like memorize it. And we all got frustrated with it towards the end, but it, you know, provision nine states that profession of nursing collectively through its professional organizations must articulate nursing values maintain the integrity of the profession and integrate principles of social justice into nursing and health policy. Boom. So it is inherently the duty and the responsibility for healthcare professionals, specifically nurses to be at the front of this, this movement and to be vocal about these injustices that black women are facing in healthcare. It is the role of nurses to be bedside advocates. We are the last line of defense between greater healthcare and the wellness of patients. So yeah, education is is fundamental in that. Absolutely. 
speaking of education, did you have any, as a nursing student, was there anything in what you were learning? Because that code of ethics is, is pretty clear, right? And it's very overt in what a nurse's duty is. But did you see anything that was more covert that you feel might contribute to the problems that we see in healthcare as it pertains to Black women receiving poor care? Well, okay. One thing I can definitely think of is uh, signs and symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. We're always talking about disease processes and, and how they manifest and what that looks like on patient. One thing that I saw repeatedly was that we were talking about non-Black patients mm-hmm. and, and, and patients with uh, fair uh, white skin where you can easily see manifestations or you know you can easily see um, a type of bruising or a type of jaundice or, or, or those sorts of things. So I definitely saw that. I think that's amazing that you brought that up because that's such a is such a specific example. We could tell what type of student Lisi was, y'all. She was a student, obviously. <laughs> um, but it's such a good example, like in such a specific example of just how we're not valued and we're not seen and we're not ever the standard. We're not ever considered. You know what I mean? You're getting education on how to care for patients, but certain patients though, but they're right. not, they're not it, it saying like, that. Um, like black and brown people or black and brown patients were an afterthought. Right. Or something that you wouldn't see in, in care, you know, right. something that was not necessarily um, as immediate or as, um, as, as much, I don't know, needing of attention as, as the, as the other. So absolutely. Yeah. I definitely saw that repeatedly and, you know, um, from students and, you know, some professors, there is kind of just, you know, there's, there's an overwhelming, I think almost sense of like apathy sometimes mm-hmm. when you're really, um, seasoned into a profession, especially when like nursing, because it can be very overwhelming. Um, and you can see really traumatic things and you can, you know, almost become um, desensitized mm. to to what you're seeing. And that's uh, for many a coping mechanism. Um, it's not excusable, but it, it's a coping mechanism. So, you know, I would definitely like hear things like, you know, like super specific example. We were talking about um, hypertension um, and how that manifests and, you know, what could lead to hypertension. And a teacher mentioned, you know, if you're sitting there just eating chicken and, and drinking uh, Kool-Aid, like eating fried chicken and drinking <gasps> Kool-Aid, no. you're going to have um, hypertension. And I was like, oh, so you're, you're explicitly mentioning that um, because African-Americans are, African-American men are prone to a hypertensive crisis or any type of, um, you know, cardiovascular incidents, you know, you, you bring up this stereotype. So wow. it's, it was, that it was, it was those things that I kind of saw. And I was like, ah, oh, man, you know, you're really, um, you're really offending me and you're really not getting, uh, this, the, the intensity of your words and, um, and how harmful they can be. Right. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier. We were talking about how it's really important. And I feel like it's the duty and responsibility of the individual, not to just educate themselves in a not in just the sense of like higher education and going to medical school and doing your residency and all of those things, right. That we say is their education and their credentials and things, but it's even more so important for you to work on 
being a good human being in that setting. That's just one of those professions where you kind of need to be a good person and you need to care about people no matter what color skin they have. Right. Yes, definitely. It's, I don't know. I think it's the same as any type of public servant or anyone that's dealing with, like we keep mentioning people at their most vulnerable people in, you know, different situations like, uh, where police show up, health professionals, you can name all sorts of public servants. You really have to take a look at your own bias, you know, and your own yourself and your experiences and your privilege. Definitely. And and keeping the conversation open and going and for systems or, you know, uh, healthcare systems, higher education, you know, to keep those conversations open and ongoing is essential as well. And that's really one thing that I'll say about the College of Nursing that stood out to me is that when um, George Floyd was murdered back in May, you know, they had tried to do weekly check-ins um, as a, as a you know, as the College of Nursing faculty, and they would have students join as well. And we would talk about, you know, what we can do to, to see how this injustice bleeds into healthcare um, and what they can do as as a college to, um, to shed light on that and to bring in education. And they were very open to, uh, to students, honestly, just reading them, <laughs> like yeah. being like, you know, um, we don't have black professors. We don't, um, we don't have black lab instructors. You know, we still have like a school of medicine that's named after somebody who did experimentation on black bodies, you know, wow, that sort of thing. So that's one thing I will say about the College of Nursing, is that they were very open to, to having that conversation. More important than that is keeping the conversation going and applying change after that conversation. Uh, the change is what we really want to see more than anything. I think, I don't know about you guys, I'm, I'm pretty worn out from the conversation. I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty tired of it because it feels like we have this conversation in, in healthcare and in prisons and education and housing. We have this conversation repeatedly. I think we're all ready to see active change. Absolutely. We have to be that change. I think before the break, I was telling about my experience and I caught myself, you know, feeling guilty, um, for like feeling bad, you know, because of the weight that society puts on us and all of the trauma that we do experience. So we even feel bad talking about our trauma, but talking about it, like you said, and continuing the conversation in, especially in spaces where the conversation hasn't been had, especially in spaces where people are ignorant or don't have the information because we've gone over in this, this episode, some really clear data that points to directly to the disparities and to the horrible experiences that black women are having at the hands of medical professionals in this country. But I think you're absolutely absolutely 100% right in saying that there has to be action taken, action taken on the behalf of the individuals who are assuming these positions in society, active participation in the solutions at the top. Organizations like the FDA and other public regulatory bodies have to acknowledge this as a problem and put policies in place and put funding in place to do adequate research and root out these these problems and to educate 
folks in a way that will alleviate this. You know Absolutely. what I'm saying? I couldn't so. have said it better myself. Like you are right there. It is a multifaceted issue. There are so many different systems at play and so many systems that need reconstructing um, and to, uh, to just to really change in order for black communities to feel protected, especially in healthcare. Absolutely. It's, it's from, it comes from all directions because there is, there is an attack on us from, like you said, from the facet of food deserts in, in our communities, which, and people are like, that doesn't have anything to do. You are what you eat. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. we know that food can, or lack of nutrition can cause many of the diseases that we see, you know? So you have food deserts, but you have liquor stores everywhere on every corner in, in a lot of black communities. Why is that? You know what I'm saying? It just comes from all aspects, from the food, from the education standpoint, from housing. I mean, if you're living in subpar housing, that causes, that lends to the problem of healthcare, right? That Absolutely. That's a, a, a huge part of it. And I think that when we neglect to acknowledge that these things are all connected, that is actively trying to brush the problem under the rug. And I think that that's a tactic used by lots of people who say they aren't racist, but obviously they are, you know, (laughs) because they try to divide it and they try to separate it and say, oh, those things aren't connected. When in fact they're connected, not only are they connected, but they're purposeful in their design. Absolutely. And that's, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because another thing that plays into to healthcare systems and the overall health and well-being of, of black individuals is generational trauma, historical trauma, the things that that we experience on a daily basis, um, the things that you see, you know, on the news, on social media, not only is that such a, an incredible toll on mental health, but on your physical well-being as well. Right. Yeah. When these things happen, it just, it doesn't just affect our mind. I mean, obviously our, our mental health is impacted, but pathologically those two things become intertwined when you experience so much uh, mental anguish and pain and trauma, those things, and I'm sure you can attest to this, can manifest in the body in various ways. Absolutely. You know, it's not chicken and Kool-Aid, <laughs> tell your teacher, you know, it's not chicken and Kool-Aid causing it. It's, it's, it's heavy for us, you know, like this society profits off of our bodies. They steal our culture not only do they not want to help us when we're in trouble, but they they do things purposefully. And I know that this is, you know, people are going to get flack, but I know that there for a fact that there are medical professionals out there that that target people of color. Absolutely. Or like or who will see um, or who, who see patients of color as as individuals who who put themselves in these positions or just, you know, not right. like, um, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they um, feel like it's, it's our fault, right? Yes. It's like the, yes. the victim blaming that, that we see so often where, where, where it's like, if you were to just do this, or if you were to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, or if you were to do all manner of things, this wouldn't be happening to you. Right. Like pretending that it's a, 
an even and fair playing field, which it's not. Right. Not at all. And we talk about that in a lot of our episodes on many different fronts, but I'm so glad that we were able to to touch on this because it's a really important topic. And it's it's not just, even though we're talking about Black women, it impacts all of us, our, our whole community. Absolutely, yes. Thank you so much, Lisey, for coming on and talking about this. I know it's not an, an easy thing to talk about, but thank you so much for lending your experience and, and your knowledge on the topic and, and coming here and being with us. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for having me anytime. I love talking healthcare. <laughs> so thank you guys. We love it. You're awesome at it. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you. All right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. All right, bye. bye. That was awesome to yeah. talk to someone who has the knowledge because I mean, we know what, the issues are, and we can talk data all day, but that firsthand experience in the the field and in that realm, mm-hmm. we needed that. Oh, yeah, definitely. And again, the moral of the story is we got to take care of our Black bodies and we got to take care of our Black queens, especially when it comes to healthcare, because again, there's so many inequities and challenges that Black women have to deal with, not only being patients of healthcare, but also being nurses, being actual healthcare professionals, The just the challenges that they have to endure. And even on the educational side, being a Black woman or a Black person of color and seeing the lack of representation of Black and brown bodies and seeing the lack of representation and the stereotypical um, uh, messages that teachers and faculty are sending. It's a big issue and we definitely have to figure out how to address it. And again, how to empower and mobilize black women so they can feel like they're in a safe space to not only be a patient, but also to be a professional in those fields so they can flourish in those fields. Absolutely. And then we have, now we're creating that healthy cycle where we now have representation in that field so that we, when we go to the doctor, when we go see a mental health professional, when we go to have a baby or we go uh, to, to be seen in any way that relates to healthcare, we see someone that looks like us. We see someone that can relate to us, you know, that's a, that's a really big part of it, but even bigger part of it, seeing people that are different from us is okay. And we don't have to glaze over the differences and someone doesn't have to look just like you for you to treat them with love and respect and care. Yeah. You know, I think that's really just the basis of this whole thing is, you know, even if you're, it shouldn't take us just, ha- just having, while I would love for us to have more black healthcare professionals. That's not all that it takes. And it shouldn't just take that. Yeah. It takes also people who are not black to, to open their eyes and to realize their part in this. And that, you know, if they just operate with a lot more care and education and uh, awareness, mm-hmm. then we can really change outcomes in a really big way for black women in our community. And I think part of that is going to be one of the biggest things is mandating training Mm -hmm. that targets and addresses anti-racism and implicit bias. 
Absolutely. If you have that training and you start developing that cultural competency, then you start to understand the issues and the challenges challenges and psychological aspect of black patients that are being in your care. Right. It's the same thing with uh, policing. You have to understand the individuals that you're policing. Same thing. You have to understand the black people that you're taking care of or, you know, you're attending to. You can't just come from out of outside or come from out of nowhere and say, okay, this is exactly what you're experiencing. This is what you're dealing with. And so this is how I'm going to take care of you because this is what I learned from the media about who you are. Right, right. So you got to rethink, <laughs> relearn, and re-educate yourself <laughs> <laughs> on this topic and many others. Uh, that really wraps up our show, um, except for the glow. So we'll have that coming up here. But before we get to that, thank you for listening. We want you to like, follow, and subscribe to our podcast and make sure to share it with a friend. We'll catch you next time. Re-educated, brought to you by the New Mexico State Office of African American Affairs, aimed to study, identify, and provide change by means of support, advocacy, and resources relevant to the African American community. As a reminder, every voice matters. Make sure you are counted in the 2020 Census. The Office of Equity and Inclusion was established by Mayor Tim Keller in 2018. The vision of the office is to inspire and equip city governments to make Albuquerque a national role model of racial equity and social justice. The office is responsible for dismantling systemic barriers to achieve racial, gender, health, and socioeconomic equality. Michelle Melendez is the inaugural director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion. In September, Melendez was instrumental in passing R2075, legislation that strengthens and reaffirms the city's commitment to addressing racial equity and social justice. The resolution calls on the city to support the startup and growth of businesses owned by people of color, women, racial equity assessments for the city department, and requires equity training for the city council leadership and administration. Our very last segment is The Glow, where we'll be highlighting individuals and organizations doing great work in our community. For this edition of The Glow, we'd like to highlight our own Chaslin Wins with the Office of African American Affairs, as well as Kim York with Black programs at NMSU for putting on Girl Trek. Girl Trek is a national health movement that activates thousands of Black women to be change makers in their lives and communities through walking. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our post-production partner, BetterSense. Powered by nearly a decade of audio and production experience, BetterSense exists to help you create your life-changing projects. Go to bttrsnc.com in order to explore how you can awaken the potential of your musical ideas. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Reeducated. We hope you were able to rethink, relearn, and get reeducated on some really important topics. Make sure to visit us at our website, oaaa.state.nm.us. See you next time. <laughs>